How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you need to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today, we're taking a spin in cars built to visit the gas station less often or not at all. In March, Americans bought record numbers of gas-electric hybrids and pure electric vehicles as fuel prices continued to climb. 52,000 cars, or about 3.5% of total sales, were gas sippers or gasoline-free. That's heartening for clean car enthusiasts, but alternative vehicles still have a long way to go before moving from the coastal cities to the American mainstream. In the next hour, we'll discuss the new generation of cars coming on the market, the companies making them, and the emerging technologies they're betting on. And as always, we'll include questions from our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Joining us, we're pleased to have three auto experts. Chelsea Sexton, a former General Motors marketer, featured in Who Killed the Electric Car, is now an EV advocate and consultant. Katie Fehrenbacher is a senior writer at GigaOM, an online news site. And Lucilia Wong is a contributor at Forbes. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, Chelsea Sexton, let's begin with you. Thank you for coming up from L.A. for this. Uh, first, uh, before you left L.A., I understand you sent out a tweet. What, what was that tweet that you sent out? <laughs> I might have suggested that I was heading here to do my first girl-on-girl-on-girl on girl on girl experience. Okay, <laughs> and well. And anyone was welcome to come join. Well, here we are. I am, I am, I'm, you know, marketing at heart, right? Marketing racy in San Francisco. Well, you, you've been doing this a long time. You could uh, been in law, involved with electric vehicles for a, a long time. Can you give us uh, the context? There was a brief shining moment for electric vehicles in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then things died down. Where are we now? You know, it's a little deja vu all over again, this generation versus last. Uh, we're in that same little vulnerable valley of death a little bit. Um, you know, we had cars on the road last year for years. It looked very promising. The automakers started out seemingly dedicated, and a couple of years in, it kind of all went south. Now we've sort of gotten them to come back to it. We have some automakers more into this than others, but there are at least a handful that are fairly aggressive. And yet, you know, I think there's a little too much complacency going on right now of, okay, the momentum's there. This is inevitable. We can all just sort of move on. And having seen what could happen, I don't think that's true. Katie Fehrenbacher, you know, do you think the glass glass is half empty or half full on this? Do you think that it's, yeah? Well, I think the current um, public sentiment and political environment, I feel like it's definitely trended towards the glass half full. You know, there's this, in 2012, there's been a big backlash kind of against electric cars. The world has been politicized. Um, so in that respect, I would say glass half empty. Um, kind of here in Silicon Valley over the past couple of years, I think, um, and, you know, we've had Tesla IPO um, a couple of years ago. So I think in Silicon Valley, there's this kind of, there has been this kind of trend where, you know, there's this rising tide and, you know, we're just going to hit this peak. And I think that's also not true. So I guess so, I gave you a half answer. but Yeah, yeah it's, it's <laughs> both half empty and half full. At the same time. Uh, Yusilia Wong, uh, sometimes people think there's a lot of hype in the EV market. Is that true? Do you think that they've been overhyped? 
Um, I don't know if they're being overhyped. I think there's just a lot of high expectations for what um, the sales can be. And, and we've seen that with General Motors involved in Nissan Leaf, where they set um, their sales forecast and they couldn't uh, meet them, right? So that was, um, I think, a big problem last year when, you know, at the end of the year, they sort of had to come to the recognition that really, you know, not as many people want those electric cars as they uh, initially thought. Um, that was 10,000 cars, not a huge number for General Motors. That's a pretty small number. I know some EV advocates, some of Chelsea's friends, wanted them to build a lot more of those, right? Right. And I think it's part of it's about managing expectation. It's not whether the cars are great or performers expected it or whether they can really achieve you know, fuel savings. It really is just what the company said they would set out to do. And when they don't achieve that goal, then it just makes them look bad. Um, so I, I guess... I don't know if that would be considered a hype, but I think um, there's still a lot of education that's needed to really, um, I think, popularize EVs, and, and I don't think it's not as it has been done. So I'm not sure um, I would agree that there's complacency, or perhaps I'm not sure what you meant, but I'm not sure if there's a complacency. I think there's actually a lot of concerns, even on the part of automakers, on how we're going to make all this work, considering how much so what, money they've put into it. What did you mean by complacency, Chelsea? I mean more on, by the stakeholders and those that have been sort of pushing for this and trying to make it happen and policy and all the various supportive mechanisms. And, and, and to a certain degree, even the community itself, the EV advocates and, and enthusiasts, you know, have been wanting for so long, and it seems like so much is happening. And it's absolutely true. Compared to a few years ago, <laughs> tons is happening. Compared to what we actually need to get done in order to make sure this is sustainable, we're just not there yet. But at the same time, on, on the sales numbers, you know, a lot of us sort of sat back, the sort of veterans of the industry, about what's been sold is what we expected. You know, nobody thought that Nissan was going to sell 25,000 cars. You know, shame on Carlos for saying it, but 10,000, best case scenario, was about what we were expecting first year out. And, you know, there's an earthquake, a couple things we couldn't predict, but GM didn't fall very short of theirs. Nissan hit right, you know, just under 10,000. And so part of the, the frustration is a little bit that, whether it's media or opposition or whoever, is, I would say, confusing corporate sales projections or goals with more industry analyst views of, of what's realistic versus what someone wants to put out in a press release. And another thing that veterans say is they understand who these buyers are. So let's talk about the market. Who buys electric cars? Is it just the uh, tree huggers? No, <laughs> no. I mean, it's always been assumed to be a very crunchy California environmental thing. And there's certainly some environmentalists that are buyers. But, you know, as long as I've been doing this, they've been the smallest group of people buying these cars. And the largest has been, I want it because it's cool, it's fast, it's fun, it's a new thing to have. Classic early adopters. And then the second and very large and largely overlooked group are those that love the technology. The, you know, Caltech engineer types. This is how I came into it, not as an engineer, but as a geek who just love the efficiency and love the technology and that sort of thing that would not necessarily be classic early adopters, but on this they are because they love that technology. And then after that comes all the cause-oriented folks, whether it's environmental or energy security, and behind them somewhere, you know, a couple of years, it's more the economic argument, pragmatists, generally. And do car companies understand this? No. Do, do their marketing campaigns reflect this market segmentation that you're talking about? Judging from the standpoint that Nissan's very first ad had a polar bear hugging somebody, I'm thinking no. <laughs> well, I mean, GM said itself that it was revamping its marketing um, for the vault over the next couple of weeks. You and know, it kind of awful. didn't get it right at the beginning. And the, the new owner ads are terrible. <laughs> and they had some very confusing ads with a, a person with a vault at a gas station and, and a consumer kind of scratching yeah. his head, explaining, yes, it's electric, but it, but it goes to gas stations. And it's, just seemed, it's a hard message to get across. 
Um, so you blame the companies for not uh, acting upon that research? You think they've got it wrong-headed, their marketing campaign? I think there are two incredibly underutilized resources in this industry, whether it's the automakers, utilities, politicians, whomever. The EV drivers, those with experience using the technology, using the charging stations, we have absolute data usage, usage patterns of things, and those that have worked with those consumers and have worked the front lines and were left over from the last generation of deployment. There's a lot of needs we already skinned. And we don't know everything, but we know enough to, to prevent skinning some of them again, and yet we're having to sit back and watch that because there's so much arrogance and so much, hey, everyone did it before. It was stupid. That was just a little generation. We got nothing to learn from that. We know how to do this. But how do you, um, what do you mean? What do you mean by using the, the EV users in, in commercials and sort of personal? No, I mean for, for Intel. Focus yeah, groups, you know, you. sort of. Okay. But they do have focus groups, no? Or they don't listen to them? There are some focus groups. They started really, really late, really late. Uh, but, you know, one, one day of a couple hours with somebody is not necessarily an, uh, enough, uh, as we're seeing. I think one of the problems also is that the EV drivers are so split, like you were saying. So there's all these drivers who bought the Roadster, and, you know, buying a $100,000 car is going to be so completely different than the DIY geeks who are, you know, doing their own EVs, you know, back you in the day. Think. Not so much. <laughs> well, I mean, if someone who buys a $100,000 car is a completely different Generally, buyer than generally, guy like the Mitsubishi yeah. IME or something like that. No, I, I mean, I agree with the sentiment, but I have, I have watched several, you know, retired professors who would never spend that kind of money on a car mortgage their house because they just believed in this so much. And it was the, the next thing they could get after EV1, and they wanted to support Martin Eberhard. And, you know, there, a lot of the technology enthusiasts fell into that group as well, even though normally that would never be their behavior. But instead of taking vacations and buying stuff, this was their splurge. Yeah, and these aren't mainstream people necessarily either, right? So, no, I mean, to get past the early adopter to the mainstream is going to even be more right. difficult to market that to that whole set. And didn't Forger say that they're going to target really just the, when they consider EV buyers in any yeah. way? So they're not really targeting the mainstream um, no, but audience. it was interesting how he said, yeah, Jim Farley recently. Uh, <laughs> who's, who's Jim Farley? Uh, he's a global marketing, head of global marketing for Ford. And he recently made a comment that just we all loved so much that basically said, we're not going to, we're advertising the, the Ford Focus EV to people who would buy EVs, not to you and me. Yeah. Because those are just weird people over there that would buy electric cars. I mean, it's sort of interesting that the sentiment, but it encapsulates how automakers think of these early buyers. Mm. And by early adopters and fast followers, we're talking the first two, three years of buyers, not the first six months. But they tend to think of those, those people as so fundamentally different from normal people, from mass market, and I think they're more concentrated versions maybe in some respects, but they're not completely different animals, and that's the misunderstanding. Well, let's compare that with General Motors, who spent years advertising the Volt. I know some people thought it was just vaporware, that it would never get built. It was just sort of a delay tactic, right? That, that it, Some people were actually accepting that it was... Um, it actually got built. Uh, so GM spends tons of money, sells 10,000 cars the first year. You're Ford. You're thinking, well, that was, was that well money spent? Well, maybe not. Maybe we should go a different path, right? So let's compare Ford and GM in terms of their big splash versus very targeted marketing approach. Which one's more effective? Well, I, I think with, what happened with GM is I think they spent several years touting um, the, the vault, but then you have the whole financial market crisis and the economy tanked, and it's just not a good time to market a car that's so expensive. So I think so. There's a base economics because I would like to drive an electric car or you know or plug-in hybrid, but it's just not the price range that I can afford at this point. Um, so I think you have to consider the timing 
of when GM actually introduced Evolve and, and tried to market it um, to the, a wider audience. Um, Do you think Ford is half-hearted? I don't think so. I, I'm not quite sure about the idea of using reality show and Facebook game, though, as uh, vehicles to, to promote um, the focus. I don't know if you played the game. Um, but I've seen demo, I mean, just a video of it, um, and I'm not quite sure who the audience is and, and where people really would play the game and then say, oh, I really want to go try that focus. Um, I think it's more like when you go to dealers and you look around and you say, oh, I've heard about this car, but I don't know what, much about it, and I'll test drive it, and, well, darn, it's too expensive, and I don't think I'm going to buy it. Chelsea Sexton, you think Ford is half-hearted? If half, yes. That's the glass is less than half full, I think. Yeah, Ford is, I mean, they're very different approaches. If you want to compare uh, GM or Nissan, they both picked a particular vehicle and technology, and they are an inch wide and a mile deep. Ford is a mile wide and an inch deep. And they're sort of doing as little as they have to. They launched the Ford Focus EV in December. They have put 12 of them on the road, mostly to utilities and making them sign agreements that they won't let anyone test drive them. They finally started media drives five months after they started delivering vehicles. I mean, they have tried so hard to not actually put this car out there. And absolute evidence of, of how they're marketing it. I mean, the, the demographics is not someone who's going to watch a, a reality TV show on Yahoo.com. It's just not. If <laughs> you're trying to appeal to the, to the folks that are interested in these cars, that's not how you're going to do it. Meanwhile, Alan Mulally is running around saying, no one actually wants a plug-in car. They just want gas hybrids. So their leaders are trashing their vehicles at the same time they're going, oh, yeah, but we're so serious. It's all, it's all press release. And if GM did the same thing, they'd be setting the building on fire. I mean, people would never tolerate it. And that's part of why GM hyped that car so much. And they had to convince all of us that they were serious, given the EV1 and what had happened. Did they do it to the degree that we kind of made fun of them for, for various things? Sure. But it did take that flogging, the fact that they were doing this and the technology and their, you know, all the, the transparency was required just to get anyone to believe that they were doing this car at all. So that was mainly for the media and the advocates' benefit as much as it ever was for consumers trying to sell that car. So they're very different approaches and reasons why they've taken the, the, the marketing approaches they have. Sure, GM was atoning for its sins. Something uh, like that, yes. Uh, Ford, uh, I heard Al Mulally speak recently. Bill Ford's been sitting here on this stage recently, and he would say their strategy is one platform, and we can put electric motor in there, plug-in hybrid, or gasoline hybrid, because they don't know which one we all are going to buy. So you, you're blaming them for not marketing and selling more, and they would say, hey, it's the consumers, they're not buying them. So, But again, I go back to, if only there are ways to find out some of this information, if only there were drivers, and if only there were people who've worked in the industry, and they can't sit back and say, we have absolutely no idea. You know, it's one thing to say, we're not sure exactly if a plug-in hybrid or an EV will win, in the, and you know, what will happen in 10 years, of course not. But to say, we're building literally one at a time, and we're going to put a couple hundred on the road, that's card numbers. Those are compliance programs. Those are we are doing as little as we have to to get the card credits we have to get. CARB, the California Resources Board. So right. Please your, give your regulators some candies and then yes. just go about your business. But I would love for to prove me wrong. <laughs> Which electric car maker is most exciting to you all right now? Tesla. Same? Yeah. Chelsea's husband works for Tesla. So. <laughs> yep. Uh, Lucilia? Um... Well, Tesla for the sexy cars, um, but uh, I think that's that's it as far as... So why Tesla? Let's, let's talk about Tesla. They certainly accomplished making electric cars cool. Ten years ago, electric car meant a go-kart with funny wings and right, a little lawnmower or something. Now, 
uh, electric car means cool, sexy Model S. Well, I think Tesla is um, one of the only startup companies that has kind of not necessarily succeeded yet, but has made it to certain milestones, and they're doing reasonably well. Um, and I think that, you know, it's exciting to me that there can be a disruptive um, startup company that's trying to disrupt the car companies in general versus, you know, the large automakers creating their own EVs are just a little bit less, you know, disruptive and exciting from, from that perspective, from a media perspective. Others would say that Tesla has a huge stock price. Whether they got $3 billion valuation when the CEO of General Motors was here, I looked at the Tesla stock price since the GM IPO, uh, and Tesla had outperformed Ford, GM, uh, and Daimler from that artificial starting point. So the stock market's liking Tesla. Some people might say that they've just been announcing uh, lots of products. It's also a heavily shorted stock on the stock market. A lot of people are betting on Tesla's failure. Mm -hmm. Chelsea, tell us some more. Are you... um Look, Elon's a showman. I mean, there's absolutely some storytelling and some showmanship as part of all of this. And sometimes I'd say more showmanship than substance and vice versa. But the reality is that for a long time, they had put more electric cars on the road than any major automaker out there. And I do, th- I agree with Katie that they're the first ones, first startup that looks even remotely viable that we've seen. Um, and the, you know, what's interesting about them, and I think what people resonate to, is how aspirational their vehicles are. They're the one company that kind of does get that these are an emotional purchase. And it is not some dumbed-down appliance you have to make really boring to get people to accept. Vehicles are all about passion in one way or another, and they're about the, emo- the emotional experience. For some people, that's performance. For some people, that's quiet and smooth. For some people, it's HOV lane and just easy. doesn't matter. But they kind of get that that's what it's, what it's about. And... So from that perspective and from a design perspective and showing what's possible, I think they're interesting. From a long-term success, I really like the guys who understand that a 100- or 150-mile car, real-world 100-something miles, is where it's at. And making that cheap enough for more and more people to afford is actually more important (laughs) than making a 300-mile version that only a few people can afford. So it's a little bit of a a bi-directional goal, but, you know, well, that's the problem I have. So I'm not sure if Tesla can actually, well, when it's going to actually make that affordable cars, right? For so the second model, I remember a couple of years ago, Model S was supposed to be like marketing to the masses, but it's still too expensive. So I thought, okay, the third model is going to announce it coming out, and maybe that the price will come down. No, it's not coming down. That's well, the thing with. But the third model is based on Model S. Right. It's going to be the third Blue Star or whatever is supposed yeah. to be the super cheap one. That's thirty thousand, which is like a couple years away. Right. I mean, I think it's taking a while, but I'm thirty thousand super cheap. I guess in EV terms. <laughs> super yeah. cheap. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, see, I guess it's. I'm not. I don't expect Tesla to make the affordable car. It's going to be Nissan or Mitsubishi or somebody like that to make the the hundred mile everyman car that I could actually afford, maybe. And Tesla will make the one that I aspire to and, and, you know, have to go get a roadster fix every once in a while because I like torque and horsepower more than anyone reasonably should. But the other thing Tesla's doing that's kind of neat is they're having uh, different battery packs. You can buy more mileage. You can yeah. have the 100-mile version, the 200-mile version, the 300-mile version, something like that. And you pay more each. Now, that sounds like something interesting for the Absolutely. industry. Is that going to address different buyers with different wallets and different levels of range anxiety? 
I think so. I think they're also thinking outside the box in terms of how they're going to sell it, in terms of design features. I mean, that's also why they're exciting. Instead of, you know, Ford CEO saying, like, we're not going to, we're only selling to the EV drivers, they're trying to sell to just a reg, not a regular person, but a person that's not an EV enthusiast. They're trying to bring them in with other features, like, you know, these different range things and, and kind of weird, unique designs, like with their, SUV, um, minivan, yeah. I do so. like the roominess of the, of the van. I think that would really be appealing because the Ford um, Focus electric, I think part of the trunk of the bag is actually taken up with a battery, so you don't get as much trunk space. And then for somebody who, you know, has a lot of athletic equipment or kids with a lot of things, you know, that might be, um, you know, not a selling point for for Ford to do that. So, well, the Model yeah. S is the first right car, electric car designed from the bottom up to be as an electric car instead mm-hmm. of... Of this generation. Instead of like taking a, another chassis and putting in uh, batteries basically into an right. inter- internal combustion car. So, yeah, so, I mean, I think they're, they're trying to think outside the box, whereas a lot of the big EV makers are not. We're talking about electric cars and plug-in cars at Climate One. Our guests are Chelsea Sexton, former General Motors marketer and EV advocate and consultant, Katie Fehrenbacher, senior writer at GigaOM, and Eucelia Wong, a contributor at Forbes. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, battery prices have been a big obstacle uh, to EV adoption, getting the price down. Let's talk about battery prices. Are they falling? Are they still a, uh, are they falling with deployment, or are they still the biggest obstacle to, to EVs? I think that they're falling with deployment. I think the, some recent figure about 14% decline in, in the prices, but they're still very expensive. Per year? Or the, it's over a year, yeah. I think it's year over year. Um, but they're still very expensive, and I think this most recently cited figures are, I think they're costing about twelve to 15000 for the Electra Focus, um, and that's about a third of the price of the, of the car. Um, so that's still too high. Um, and... You know, we talk about Tesla, and yeah, you can always pay more for more powerful batteries, and that will you know, give you the range you want. But ultimately, you want long range and cheaper batteries so that you can really give a mass adoption that way. So yeah, I think it's still too expensive; it needs to come down. Anyone else? I mean, people say that they're not fast, falling fast enough. Certainly, Moore's law doesn't apply to batteries as it does to other silicon uh, conductors, etc. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the problems where there's been a lot of startup electric car makers in Silicon Valley um, that have been expecting battery prices to drop the way Moore's Law has dropped prices for chips. So um, that's been one of the miscalculations, I think, um, in terms of the startup community. But at the same time, I don't think that battery price has ever been the biggest obstacle to EV adoption, or vehicle price for that matter. You know, production has is currently the single biggest obstacle. There's not that many available. And there might be, you know, Leaf and Volt and, and I'm even stuff right here. But if you sort of look at the urban areas and the, the broad early adopters who want EVs right now, there are not that many. And for all the talk of, of the cars didn't sell as so many last year as they predicted, they also didn't have them sitting around on the lots. There, there has been an availability issue from the very beginning in one place or another. So variety will help sales, production will help sales, and yes, we want prices to come down, no question. And they are, but not as fast as we want. And yet, for this stage of the market, it's not been the biggest obstacle. In three years, two years, absolutely. 
if we're still at, if we're still at these prices in two years, we got a problem. But today, that's not been the issue. So when I went to buy my Nissan Leafs south of San Francisco, there were four or five Leafs on the lot. I had my pick of red, silver. I got the blue one. So there was certainly a number of supply in San Francisco, and this is one of their top markets. Chevy, uh, uh, you know, idled their Volt production plant for a while. So I think the car makers would say, demand is the problem, not supply. And yet every day I have someone coming to me saying, help me find a Leaf or a Volt. I mean, the, as soon as GM shut the factory down, I still had people contact me every day saying, help me find one. I can't find one. And I'm asking, you know, 5,000 people on Twitter, anyone know where these things are sitting because I can't find them? I had one Virginia dealer come to me and say, we got four. Nationwide, I've, not, I've never found the pocket of Volts that was sitting around that GM had to shut that factory down. So could there be a supply-demand mismatch geographically? Sure. I mean, those mm-hmm. certainly are, are issues that we have to resolve. But there has not been... You have 100,000 vehicles, and we have, you know, 10 different models, and, you know, no one's buying them. We have two, basically, and we're starting to get the eye, Meave, or the eye. Uh, and, and so part of it is, do you want one of those two cars, or are you waiting for the couple, one of the couple dozen we know are coming? Sure, uh, but they're still premium products. So, Katie Fehrenbacher, are battery prices or prices overall an obstacle for these, even, I'll throw in even hybrids, not just pure electrics. They cost more than regular gasoline cars, and that's an obstacle, uh, particularly with a tough economy. Yeah, I mean, of course, um, you know, battery prices are going to be one of the problems for electric vehicles, I think, for a significant amount of time. Um, you know, there are some startups that are, and, you know, big battery makers that are trying to do different types of breakthroughs to bring the price down. You know, there's some in Silicon Valley. There's something called Envia that we wrote about recently. Um, you know, IBM is, has, like, a new breakthrough. 3M is working on some stuff. But, um, but that's going to take a long time. You know, it's not Moore's Law. It's going to take decades for that. We talked about Silicon Valley investors and how the uh, car making is making cars is not like making chips. Uh, Kleiner Perkins is one of the most uh, well-regarded, most famous uh, uh, firms in Silicon Valley. They've made several bets on automakers, haven't worked out so well. Chelsea, what do you think of Kleiner Perkins uh, as an auto investor? I would really like them to stay away from my playground. <laughs> um, you know. But a lot of the advocates were very happy when Kleiner Perkins went in saying, mm-hmm. hey, look, this is smart money, Silicon Valley. These guys know what they're doing. This is a validation of the sector. This is no longer yeah. you know, hippies in the woods. This is like real money. No, I think that I think we were all excited to see venture capitalists become interested in these technologies. Absolutely. And, and Kleiner was one. Vantage Points invested in Tesla and in Better Place. And so we've had a few, and there are others that are sort of sub, subsets of that. But you know, we, we were excited for the enthusiasm, but whether it's, Investing in a company or developing policy, we still want to see experience, wisdom in the conversation. And that's what has sort of been lacking. And I'd say that, that the issue is not so much what Ray invested in. It's everybody else who followed on believing that Silicon Valley has a crystal ball and didn't do their own diligence and likewise didn't invest the wisdom in those conversations. And you know, believing in the crystal ball is part of what has gone wrong. I think part been, of, sorry, I was going to say, I think part of the problem um, is what Chelsea's talking about is like the venture capitalists will make these investments and then, um, you know, well-known venture capitalists and then, you know, government money will follow well-known venture yeah. capitalists because, you know, they have a long history of success. So, you know, the DOE will say, oh, okay, you know, we'll go with, you know, yeah. that company funded by so-and-so and then, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. 
But these are risky investments. The VCs, if they win on 10 or 20% of their investments, they're happy. Then they win big. And most of what they invest in fails. They don't talk right. about that yeah. as much, right? So and autos are no different, right? So no. we should have expected this. We absolutely should have out of the venture investments. And the venture investments are not the problem. It's everybody who followed on. And the DOE is, is the classic example. Oh, my gosh, Kleiner Perkins is like the celebrity venture firm. They must know something we all don't know back here. Let's invest in them because Ray did. And yet... Ray, you're talking about Ray, Ray Lane. Ray Kleiner, yeah. Partner. And venture capitalists expect an 80-something percent failure rate. The DOE and taxpayers can't afford that failure rate. They're, they're fundamentally different approaches that need to be involved, and yet they've been a little too codependent for the last few years. So has government money helped or hurt uh, the electric car sector? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think mostly I think it has helped, um, only because, it, you know, Tesla, the, the car that we are excited about, um, certainly has gotten a big um, government help in, in building the factory and, and getting the the models going. So um, I think... It's an old General Motors factory in Fremont that now is coming to life again to build electric cars. The, the That's exciting. Has, right. And then mm-hmm. the, the, the powertrain a business that they have. Um, so I think uh, Tesla is a good example of something that has worked so far. Um, with Fisker, Fisker is a little different um, only because, you know, the, the government sort of cut off Fisker's ability to draw Let's down. say what Fisker is. Oh, Fisker Automotive is another um, electric car company. They um, they make plug-in electric um, hybrids, so it's, it runs on both gasoline and um, electricity. Um, gorgeous, it's, gorgeous car. It is beautiful car. <laughs> yeah. The first one's the Karma um, that they launched recently, and um, they're actually based in California, in, in Irvine, I believe, mm-hmm. right, still. Um, so, so they they built the first car and launched it, and it's about a hundred thousand dollar price tag, you know, similar to the first Tesla model. Um, and then they wanted to make the second car, the second model, and they got a government loan um, to do it, but um, they didn't meet certain goals, so milestones set by the government. So the Department of Energy basically said that you can't draw down on this loan anymore until. Unless or you, know, you meet the goals, so as a result, um, Physica recently had to go out and raise, I think, near five hundred million dollars to to help you know get that second model going. Um, but in that case, I guess it hasn't really worked out for Fisker because you know it had to go out and seek private money and and also has to has had to contend with a lot of technical problems with its first car. Um, so it's trying to sort of repair its reputation at the same time, trying to design a second model and try to get that going. So is Fisker going to die? I think they're really going to struggle still. I mean, they already have struggled for the past couple months, and I think they're going to continue to struggle this year. Which the guys in Detroit would say, see, there's a reason why no successful startup has come into the auto industry in the, what, last 30, 40 years. Remember John DeLorean? It's not easy to do what we do. Uh, These startups, a lot of them are not going to make it because it's a tough business, uh, especially at any time. True, although part of the issue with Fisker is, you know, the investment didn't make sense from the beginning to a lot of the veterans. And since Kleiner Perkins put the first $10 million in, there have been whispering in the corners of the EV conferences of who Henrik must have had naked pictures of. Henrik, <laughs> because... Henrik Fisker is the founder of Fisker, an auto industry uh, veteran designer. Yeah. Right. Celebrity auto right. designer. And, so, and, and the conversations have only grown as Dewey and others have invested in them. And it's not that he's not a brilliant designer. He is. But you generally, especially at the venture stage, you don't invest in the pretty skin. You invest in the Intel inside. And they outsourced the Intel to Quantum, which is a a contract company that does conversions for for different projects, but is not known for plug-in hybrids, is known for, for hydrogen conversions, and is not known for doing anything in volume. 
And so from, from very early on, we've been very skeptical, thinking they'd prove themselves at some point, and they just never have. So, you know, part of it's just a fundamental, was that a smart choice to begin with problem well before you got involved with the DOE or, or the wisdom of government funding? Well, you look, if you look at Tesla versus Fisker, like you're saying, um, you know, Fisker was really like a design firm from the beginning, and Tesla was trying to build, you know, the, tech, the battery packs and the technology. So they mm-hmm. had completely different approaches, even though they were two startup companies funded by Silicon Valley venture capitalists, and they both got, you know, DOE funds. So, you know, we can see how well some have done and how well the other one hasn't. And so so of, I was going to say, speaking of the DOE funds, um, also the issue with that loan program that a lot of car, startup car makers were counting on and that they weren't able to actually make use of it in the past year because um, the, the belief is that the DOE just gotten – uh, really skittish about approving any more loans, you know, given the political climate and what happened with Solyndra. Um, so, uh, you know, so I think a few car companies, electric or plug-in, you know, startup companies actually either went bankrupt or, you know, they just gave up on the idea of developing that model that they wanted to to do with the DOE money. So, um, so in that regard, I guess, you know, some people would say the government hasn't done enough or hasn't actually fulfilled its promise of helping the, this whole startup industry to, to get going. Let's talk about that, the politicization. Uh, Dan Ackerson, the chairman of General Motors, was here, and he said, we didn't build the Chevy Volt to become a political punching bag. It had been here. He's, he's been hauled before Congress to say what happened, what's going on with the, some problems with the Chevy Volt battery. How has the politicization of electric vehicles uh, impacted these companies and their sales? Well, I mean, I think both the the best and worst thing ever to happen to plug-in cars was President Obama liking them. You know, we have had for several years now a fair amount of bipartisan support that has gone very quiet on one side because of the politics and because of the election year. And so there's still fans. They're just much quieter fans. And that, I think, has definitely hurt. I mean, it's it's hurt sales, but it's also it, it has fed the NHTSA investigation, which turned into just a witch hunt, a lot of the media stories that was the seeing, National Transportation Highway Safety Administration yeah. uh, investigation of the Chevy Volt fire in a parking lot. Okay. And GM right. said their sales were down directly related in January and February to that. Um, of course, those hearings. Right. Will it bounce back? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, they had a record month in March. General so. Motors did, yeah. Mm-hmm. There was, for, I was, for the Volt. At a dinner recently where a very conservative Republican said, he leaned over and he pulled out of his pocket some photographs and he showed me his Tesla. He was very excited about the Tesla, yeah. right? Yeah, so I can understand that that cuts across, cuts across, uh, at least it has cut across political boundaries in the past. Mm-hmm. People like the EVs because of their technology, as Chelsea said, and as well as getting off oil, all sorts of reasons. But that's, you're saying that that's kind of, Died down now because it's been political in this political. Uh, in this I think a year. lot of the the um, more conservative fans have gotten more quiet about it, but they still quietly drive their cars. I mean, you know, guys like Jim Woolsey and Frank Gaffney have been calling for plug-in cars for years because they want to get off foreign oil. So there's still an, you know sort of that cause-oriented argument. On one coast, it's more environmental, maybe on another coast, it's more energy security mm-hmm. related, but it's definitely there. Some people would say that a, a electric car is a coal-fired car. And there have been reports from The Economist that in China, an electric car is actually dirtier than an internal combustion car because of China's electricity mix. So what do you say that, hey, running your car on coal isn't any better than oil from the Middle East? Well, that's, 
I guess that's true, although um, I think you'll find also a lot of EV owners um, are actually looking at ways to um, use, I guess, a greener, cleaner source of energy, and that's why you see partnerships like, you know, Ford with SunPower try solar panels on the um, EV owners' roofs so that you can actually get solar energy to power your EVs. Um, and I think there's overall also a national shift um, toward cleaner power, um, so, you know, regardless of EVs' development. Right, so um, I think you. So we are starting to see that a lot more, and, and certainly in California, where we have the mandates to get more renewable energy. Um, I think 33% of our power supply is supposed to come from renewable sources by 2020. So, um, I mean, I, I can see how the argument that you know you, you're using, you're running your electric cars on, on dirty power. I mean, that doesn't bode well for those who, who want to see EVs as, as a green, a very green um, alternative. But I think that will eventually shift as, as a whole. National policy shifts toward more a friendly, um, a more friendly policy toward uh, renewable energy. Yeah, there's less coal being burned in the United States now than, than there used to right. be a few years ago. Yusilia Wong's a contributor for Ford, uh, contributor for Forbes, not Ford. Uh, <laughs> pardon me. Uh, Chelsea Sexton is a uh, EV advocate and consultant. We also have Katie Fehrenbacher, a senior writer at Giga Ohm. Uh, but the China thing is interesting. We haven't talked about China. Is China going to come into the EV market? A lot of the battery leaders, technology is in China. China's investing a lot in these companies. Um, you know, let's talk about the China car. Are they going to come in and sort of shake this up? Chelsea, Sexton? Well, three years ago, I think we would have said yes. Uh, certainly companies like BYD and Coda looked like they might come in and, and eat our lunch, so to speak, um, because they could do it cheaper. And that was the expectation that you know, normally it might follow the progression of the Japanese entering to the U.S. market and the Koreans entering to the U.S. market, which is basically it took 10 years for anyone to take them seriously. And that the Chinese might be able to jump that a little bit by doing electric cars sooner or cheaper than anybody else. That hasn't happened. We haven't seen them do it sooner or cheaper. It's generally more expensive, and the quality hasn't been what most people want. So if you're going to pay more, you're going to go get a, you know, something else. I think in terms of deploying electric cars in China or specifically two-wheelers, electric scooters, I think the one, um, you know, benefit of that market is that it can have a top-down approach. So the Chinese government can say, you know, there's no internal combustion scooters or, you know, cars by our taxi service providers, you know, in this city or, or, or in this place. And then everyone, you know, all the government workers will have to buy this certain type of technology. So, um, you know, it's the fastest-growing electric scooter market in the world. Um, I think the Chinese companies will focus on domestic market um, first, too, you know, before they will really move to U.S. or Europe. I mean, I know there are a few companies talking about moving out of China, but it really, I mean, they, they would, if I were them, I would tackle, tackle the domestic market first just because of government incentives involved. Sure. In BYD has some plans, which is the mm-hmm. most noted battery uh, company in China, has eventually, has, they say they have plans to come to the U.S., not anytime soon. So China as an actual market, is that something that automakers are focusing on to sell EVs there because of the government's more supportive? Maybe it's better than the United States. Is that possible? Yeah, very possible, only because of the top-down approach that um, Katie mentioned. When the government says we want this many EVs or, you know, we're going to give this much money to make that happen, that generally really happens. You know, there's not a lot of debate on, uh, year, from year to year or because of election year politics. So I think you will see um, – I mean, I, I guess I can't predict whether EVs will, you know, take off a lot faster than, than the U.S., but I certainly think that China has a greater potential, actually, as an EV market right now than the U.S., we haven't talked about infrastructure. Let's do that, and then um, we'll go to audience questions. Uh, there's often this chicken and egg conversation about P3 
people won't buy cars until there's chargers. The chargers won't go in until there's the cars. Uh, what's the state of infrastructure here in California? How much EV charging infrastructure is there out there now, and is it where it should be? Katie Fernbacher? Um I think we were talking about this <laughs> back in the green room, but there is kind of a chicken and egg problem happening. Um, but there is this problem of overinvestment in the electric vehicle charging infrastructure, particularly with some new deals. Um, so I don't think that companies need to go out and build kind of these huge electric car infrastructure networks right now because they're not necessarily going to be demand for them, I don't think. And you said overinvested. So there's too much now? There's too much money gone into infrastructure? Is that what you're I saying? think there's there's companies that have started to do this type of investment. So NRG is, you know, working with the state of California um, in, you know, to build out chargers here. And, and NRG has a network that it's built out in, um, in Dallas as well. So... Um, I'm not sure if there's like a massive amount of too much money going in the space, but um, I think there is a concern that um, some of this charging infrastructure won't necessarily be spent wisely and, and used in, in the near term. You see what you want? I was just going to say that I think um, because infrastructure is really where you're going to make actually a lot of money in long term, right? If you can own the stations, you really own the con- the, the money that the consumers will fork over. And so um, I think there's a lot of speculations or, you know, sort of uh, people trying to get into the market and build out the stations, um, regardless of whether there will really be a demand um, in certain regions. And I think that's actually the um, – I think the, the worry is that we'll have all the stations, but that there won't be enough cars, actually, enough cu- customers, really, to use those stations, and especially when all the stations are actually funded by public money. Chelsea Sexton, is the money going into the right place and the right kind of infra- infrastructure? No. No, I mean, I think the assumption that there's a lot of money to be made in this, this area is naive, very, very naive. Uh, you know, the vast majority of charging occurs at home. You know, there is a little need for a sprinkling of public charging for the range anxiety or to, to enable the occasional longer trip. But one on every street corner is way too much. And especially for those who want to make a business out of this, the more you put in, the harder it is to make a business out of any one of those chargers because there's not going to be enough utilization. Uh, and charging has been free in this state for 15 years, not because we were too stupid to figure out how to charge money for it but because retailers and site owners didn't want to. From their perspective, it was much more a marketing expense. I'd rather spend five, ten grand, put a charger in the ground, and have someone come to my Ralph's Market and not where I have to worry about monetizing all the microtransactions and all the administration and all of that. So, you know, there's a variety of issues going on here. Part of it is how much is going in. A lot of it is where. And given the geography of the investment, certainly there's way too much money afforded. And from the standpoint of what's in the ground and what is needed, there is not quite enough infrastructure in yet, but what is needed most is to finish retrofitting the infrastructure that's already out there to work with the new cars, not adding new stations. Okay. Uh, let's have the audience participation. We'd like to invite you to come join the conversation. The microphone is here, and the line will start with our producer, Jane Ann, back there. If you're on this side, we invite you to please go out that other door. around. Please go around the other side. Um, rather than crossing this camera uh, that you're walking right into. Um, um, and then uh, the line will be over there. And we encourage you to welcome your one part, one question. Uh, and this is often uh, the most exciting part, so thank you for your um, participation. Sure, come on up. Hi, well, thank you, first of all, for putting this together. This is fantastic. One, um, I have some information that I don't think is 
widespread at this moment. But a couple of weeks ago, I attended a conference um, where the chief engineer for IBM was talking about Project 500. And the reason it has that name is that this lithium-ion oxide technology that they're working on will allow the vehicle to go 500 miles between charges. So that's one thing. Second thing is I own a LEAF. I don't think I'm, I'm driving around in an affluent vehicle. It only cost me about $2,200, uh, $22,000 um, with the government incentives, both from the state and from uh, the, the federal. So I think that's priced for the average Joe. Um, and then one last point that, that Chelsea primarily is you were the hero of the first movie, you know, who killed the electric car, definitely. There was also a villain in that movie, and that was Rick Wagoner, you know, who was heading up GM at the time. Thank goodness he's gone. However, what I didn't quite understand is when you made the second movie, Revenge of the Electric Car, they really soft-pedaled GM. GM has not jumped back into the electric car market. What they're marketing is a hybrid. They're calling it an electric car, but it's not. Let's hold it there. Uh, so, Chelsea. So many things to say. Yes. So the 500-mile battery is the bane of my existence. You can take enough of any battery, stick it in the car today, and go 500 miles. <laughs> so the, the fact that there's no specs around that of 500 miles and how many kilowatt hours or how many what, for what cost, there's not enough detail around projects like that. Well, I just want to jump in because we wrote about that uh, research last week. It's not that battery won't even be commercialized to like 220, right. 230 time frame if IBM and its two partners can get that out of the lab. So it's a lab research project right, right. now. But also just the, the fundamental perception of we have to go 500 miles, and until we do, EVs aren't viable. The 150-mile cheap car is the way to go at this point. My Saturn won't go 500 miles without an extra tank of gas. Um, as far as revenge, that's really a Chris Payne question. He directed the movie, and he got to write the story. But I will say that while there are people that will differ with GM's choice to do a plug-in hybrid, they are as all-in to that plug-in hybrid as Nissan is to their EV. So they, they made a fundamentally different choice of vehicle, and we all have our emotions around whether that was the right choice. But they definitely have been very committed, and they do have the most electrified plug-in hybrid out there, especially compared to something like the Toyota plug-in Prius. So there's going to be different gambles made, and the market will determine it. Uh, but the point of the story was just to cover the, the people you know, running the race. Next audience question. Welcome. Thank you for having this forum. Um, Gary Latshaw from Cupertino. So my question really is, long-term, all the batteries all seem to revolve around lithium. So we can look at that in two ways. A, what is the worldwide supply, and what it would be the, the production capability? Are we limited, really? Peak lithium, or lithium constraints. Not particularly. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's enough different places that have it. Uh, we also need a f not that much of it, considering that even lithium-ion batteries can be recycled, and the, the core materials are valuable enough that there will be an incentive to do so, and they can be made into new batteries. So at some point, we envision that just like we went from lead to nickel to lithium, we'll eventually use something else. We'll certainly use lithium for the foreseeable future, but all of the studies have shown that we are not likely to have peak lithium issues.
Also, it might not be lithium-ion batteries, right? That would right. be relying on for decades. It could right. be other. I mean, there are other uh, types of batteries being developed now for cars. So um, I wouldn't say that lithium-ion has won the battle here. So. Uh, Yusilia Wong is a contributor at Forbes. We also have Chelsea Sexton, an EV advocate and consultant, and Katie Fehrenbacher, a senior writer at GigaUM. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our next question, please. Welcome. Hi there. Peter Franklin from El Cerrito. I have a Volt, and I invested in solar panels on my roof, so that's what it cost me to drive. Um, I'm encouraged by increasingly... Um, prominent installations of solar panels uh, over parking lots. Uh, and, of course, uh, there are some charging stations associated with that. And um, you, you can't call that over-investment even if there are several or maybe even a couple dozen uh, charging stations that don't get used in an installation like that. We're, we're talking about a, a parking lot of maybe two acres. Uh, there, there's still all that lovely pollution-free energy going back into the grid, even though some of the uh, charging stations uh, might not be in use uh, most of the time. So um, I don't call that overinvestment. Let's talk about this. Yes, solar, uh, yeah, the combination of uh, solar and charging, public charging. I mean, it's a great combination, particularly because a lot of public charging happens during the day when, when utilities are worried about peak usage. Um, I will say that in that case, I'd rather have the power, the panels go in and the wiring there and then add the boxes later as you need them rather than put all the boxes in now and have them out of warranty before you need them. Uh, but the, the promise of solar and the adoption of solar is one of the answers to this what about coal question. And just to come back to that part a little bit, I think EVs get a bad rap because you know, China's a very different argument than the U.S. in terms of its coal makeup and electricity generation. But on a nationwide grid, EVs are at least twice as clean as a gasoline car. In California, it's more like 90%. So on some level, we have to not hold a vehicle responsible for the city in which it might be driven <laughs> and go off something more aggregate. But that also means that because utilities are making the grid cleaner, the dirtiest day your plug-in car will ever have is the day you drive it home. And if you end up getting solar, and about half of EV drivers do, it only gets better from there. But twice as clean is really not a bad place to start in the U.S., even though other geographies have different conversations. Let's have our next audience question. Yes, welcome. Hi, thank you for having this panel. I'm Maureen Blanc with Charge Across Town. We're an educational campaign to advance the adoption of electric vehicles. I have a question for Chelsea. Um, we believe California will be the epicenter for EV adoption, but we think we have a long way to go. Can you tell us what you think will be what are the big hurdles today that we face in getting consumers to take a real hard look at these cars, buy them, and move towards adopting electric vehicles? I think it is largely a production and marketing issue. I say, and I specifically say marketing over education because we have so far tried to take a very educational approach, very pragmatic, you know, here's why they pencil, here's why they're not scary, Vehicles and emotional purchase. And Ward's Auto recently did a very well-respected article that started out, people will pay more for smartphones and plasma TVs, but not for EVs. And the reason that is, is because the other two appeal to people emotionally first. 
People don't necessarily understand the difference between an iPhone and Android before they know, oh, a smartphone will enable this lifestyle, it'll enable this experience, and then they go find out the details. Same thing with these cars. So part of it is just getting the information out there, but in a way that's really compelling, in a way that resonates with the people that are currently buying and not aiming at the people who aren't going to buy for three, four years. But the other thing is production. We simply need more cars, more types of cars, and we'll get there. But when there are only two choices and not that many of either, it's harder to try to convince everybody to get one. And none of the companies really market EVs on performance. As no. an EV owner and driver, it's fun to drive. Right. It's fast. It's quiet. It's zippy. But none of the ads say that. All the ads say green and righteous or something like that. Yeah, it's- I had the most interesting argument with GM because it's a funny story, so I'll tell it. They just did these new owner ads. And I love that they're using real owners, but I hate that half the ads don't even mention the fact that there's a plug. And when they did their survey of Volt drivers, the number one thing people liked about these cars were they're fun to drive. So I'm arguing with the PR guys about why don't you feature fun to drive? And he goes, well, how would you describe fun to drive in 30 seconds? (laughs) Don't you guys do this for a living? When it's a Camaro, it's obvious to them. But when it's got a plug on it, they just can't think that way, that there's an emotional experience involved. I've seen Chelsea drive a Volt. She knows how to drive that uh, fun. Okay, yes, sir, next question. um, Scott Bergquist from Albany. And uh, I noticed the focus was a lot on why companies aren't doing more to promote the vehicles. And a lot of statistics just came out today on the Internet, so I just want to run down that and then have you comment. Real briefly, we we got a line behind you. There's 28 vehicles for every 1,000 people in China. There's 800 vehicles per every 1,000 people in the United States. GM is just opening 600 new dealerships in China this year, 2,900 to 3,500. The production is going from, um, for Ford, they hope worldwide their sales are 4.5 million. By 2020, 30 million vehicles is their projection. Uh, Cadillac's going from 30,000 vehicles in 2010 in China to 100,000 by 2016. So let's get to the question. You know, so yeah. the auto industry is booming and growing, especially in China. And uh, we, we talked earlier about what, what that means for the, for the industry. Um, any reactions to those statistics? So, I mean, place your bets in China, particularly uh, on, I don't know if he was addressing this, but the electric scooter market, like I said before. Like that, if you're selling electric scooters, you need to be in China. If you're selling um, lithium-ion batteries, you need to be in China too, actually, because you have the electric car market and the energy storage market for the for the grid, the stationary grid storage. So a lot of companies from the U.S. actually have set up shop in China for that particular market. Let's have our next audience question. Yes, sir. Hi, Jerome Bahai. I'm on President Obama's Community Leaders Committee. I'm also the Veteran Advisory Committee with uh, Congresswoman Spear, and Veteran of the Year for 2011 for California. We've been working on this issue. We've actually worked with Tesla and had a big job event at a community college recently. It was in the papers. Uh, one of the problems and issues I'm very familiar with is the politics. I feel that the politics is there. I feel that the companies are making, uh, they're doing their part. The thing that I've been complaining about uh, with the White House and I'd like you to address is the market side and the market development for electric cars. Uh, consumers still do not know that electric cars are investments. There's still that idea that it's like a gas car. It will go, de- it will depreciate in value when that's not the case. Eric Tischer now works for Tesla. He converted a Volkswagen Passat, costing $2,000. He had it appraised. Now it's worth $52,000. 
To drive a, an electric vehicle a thousand miles costs five dollars. To do that in a hybrid costs 130 bucks. There's no oil changes. You change the battery out after a thousand charges. These are the things that consumers need to know. This is the thing, and I know that car companies will not make these promises because then they'll be held liable. But this well, is something that consumers need to know that, that, that it is an investment. Why is this not being done? Well, I mean, I think that's what I mean about, yes, awareness and information and education are all things that need to be done and need to be done more intelligently and need to be done more effectively. So I, I wouldn't debate that at all. I think whether it's government or automakers or stakeholders, it, that's the next step. Well, I think there have been actually quite a few um, reports or, or surveys, right, about what the kind of fuel cost um, savings you can achieve. So, But I think a lot of those numbers are really just reference points. And as a consumer, if, if you're looking to buy a car, you know, you look at it, but it really depends on your own driving habit and how often you drive the car, you know, how, how much you spend per month, and even what kind of car you had before versus what you want to buy to see how much saving you have. So, and I think that that requires some math, which I'm not sure that consumers are always willing to go back and, you know, dig up their gasoline receipts and, and do that calculations and really figure them out. I mean, on the flip side of that, I think there's also not, there's some information that the electric car companies aren't putting out there, like the warranty on the batteries and, like, how much, you know, the resale value of their car is going to be. So I think it's just like that it's a new-ish market, too. Yeah, I mean, they don't know. But I, but I would say from a from a policy perspective, particularly federal, the single most important thing that they could do in D.C. right now is fix that tax credit. I mean, I love that there's a $7,500 tax credit, but it is not helping to make cars more affordable because people still have to finance the full amount. They still have to pay another 180 bucks a month, every month for five years at least. And then in a year, they apply for a tax credit that they may or may not see the full amount of. So from an affordability, making things easier for mainstream consumers, the current credit isn't doing it. So I'd rather have what them give up the be? education. It should be like California gives you cash back. It should be a point-of-sale rebate as well as a handful of other things to help make it, you know, less costly. I mean, really, they, it should only go to vehicles that are sold at or below MSRP. They shouldn't be absorbed by dealer markups. There's a variety of smaller things that should also go along with it. I also wonder, um, during the, when you're doing the financing with uh, car companies, whether they can show you how much savings you could achieve, like what you do with, you know, solar leases. You know, a lot of those companies are able to sell them um, because they actually lay out if you, you know, this is how much you pay per month. It would be less than what you pay utilities, and you don't have to put up the upfront costs. So it's a monthly payment. So they calculate the savings for consumers, and it's very easy to understand. And I'm wondering if the same thing should be done when you go and lease a vault or a, a leave, um, where you get all that calculations laid out, and then you can see, oh, I really can save this much money because of based on my past usage. And I think that actually might really help to convince consumers on why the utilities. They yeah, the utilities actually lead the way on those sorts of calculations. So Southern California Edison and various other utilities have rate calculators on their website and you go and you plug what car you have now and what your mileage is and all these sorts of things and it spits out. It doesn't take into fact your, your actual lease payment, but it shows you the types of savings you can expect. But that's a little different, going to a website of a utility, which I'm not sure how many people like to do that, uh, versus having that at the dealer. So presenting the math at the point of sale, right, which I, would be very interesting because uh, the, the math is confusing. I mean, the electrical pricing in California depends on time of day, you know, what kind of meter you have. It's very complex. The automators are, aren't quite there in terms of presenting the math to make the sale, to make the case. Uh, Chelsea, second, you had some other ideas about how car makers might bundle car sharing or rentals uh, with sales to kind of address some of the temporary anxiety. People buy cars for the one, the aspirational right. trip, yep. not for the everyday use. Yeah, it's the SUV think. And, and even the 500-mile battery is the SUV think. I, I have to have the one thing 
that will do absolutely everything whether I do it or not. Uh, so if, a, if Nissan, for example, gave someone 10 days worth of budget rent-a-car for the days they needed their gas car or a Zipcar membership or something, it addresses the psychology of some of these choices and it helps get people more comfortable with the idea. Even though at the end of the day, if you sold your gas car, you'd pay for a lot of rental days, it's, it's the actual marketing of it and the psychology of it and pairing those things together so it just seems easy. And car companies, Ford and GM, are investing and collaborating with car share, relay rides at car, but they haven't gone, they view them as kind of hedges and investments rather than something to sort of get into their core showrooms and integrate. Yeah, but I mean, and also I think a lot of it comes down to this issue of even the car companies do not understand the market they're aiming at. You know, you can't appeal to your consumer, you can't package things to, to make things easy or, or to appeal to them if you don't understand what it is they're looking for. And so right now, as long as they think everyone's looking for nothing but CO2 reduction, it's going to be tough to, to expect those sorts of things. Well, they have, auto industry profits are up, they're doing pretty well right now, better than a few years ago. I mean, they would say they think they know their business pretty well and they're doing pretty well at it. Gas cars, sure. My ga- uh-huh. EVs, not so much. We haven't talked about European car makers. A lot of Californians like European cars. Where are the Europeans in this? We've been talking about Detroit and Tokyo. Where's Munich and Stuttgart? I mean, I have, we haven't seen that many um, uh, goals and projections come out of the uh, European car makers of what I've seen. I mean, I've test-driven a couple at like the LA Auto Show, but um, there's no one who's had some kind of big launch no, no big launches yet. It's mostly been sort of pilot programs. They're another one that have, they're going to be subjected to the California uh, Air Resources Board regulations, and so they're building little things to, to sort of address that now. Um, they've been a bit more reticent. However, BMW is starting to look fairly promising. There's a lot of excitement around their, a vehicle called the i3. And it's a little bit like the Volt, uh, kind of <laughs> kind of in between Volt and Leaf. It's 80 miles electric and then a little tiny three-gallon range extender as an option for those who want it. So, And they purposely downsized the motor, so it's not going to be fast or fun to drive in gas mode. They want to encourage you to get home and charge your car and drive it as an EV, but just in case you need that extra bit. So it's kind of a, of a middle ground, and we're waiting to hear price and volume and some of those sorts of things, but it looks like at least they are starting to get into it. And I actually saw a pure electric Volkswagen Golf on the street of San Francisco recently. I was like, whoa, what's that? I hadn't heard of it. I mean, isn't it the case that European companies have bet largely on diesel? They have different investments in different technologies, or they're not as keen on the batteries because of the capital they've deployed and what they've, what, where they've made their bets. Is that right? That and there's been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of choice between plug-ins or fuel cells. There's a lot of hydrogen versus EV that still goes on, and most of the German companies are still very wedded to hydrogen. Um, but at the same time, a lot of this, for years we've been, we've been sort of suggesting that a lot of this falls on the consumers as well. And it, it is important for the market to let automakers, whichever automaker, know what kind of car you want. And so we've been focusing a lot on companies like GM, but if you want a BMW whatever, or a Volkswagen whatever, call them up and ask for it. I mean, it's a really underwhelming experience, but you call their 800 number and you say, this is what I want to buy, and they kind of go, yeah, that's great, we don't make that. But the reason we advise it is because they get a certain volume of calls, and then they go, there's, there's demand, they got to, uh, to address it. And this part of, you know, Bob Lutz received a whole lot of emails to his personal email address and got some religion. So this is, in some cases, it's a person-to-person thing. And he's the former vice chairman of GM, right. who takes credit for being uh, the godfather of, of the of the Volt. Uh, let's just wrap up on fuel cells, uh, elect, you know, hydrogen fuel cells. A lot of automakers talk about that as the final solution, the elegant engineering solution, right? You, it's clean. The only byproduct is water. 
Is that pie in the sky, vaporware, delusional distraction stuff, or real promise? I mean, I think people have talked about the hydrogen highway in California for so long that, you know, there has been some kind of backlash in recent years. I mean, I think, you know, electric vehicles, there was this kind of buzz around electric vehicles over the past couple of years, specifically because the fuel cell um, market didn't really pan out for cars. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the enthusiasm for fuel cells have been driven, again, by the Air Resources Board, who affords them many more credits than EVs. So if you're an automaker and you don't really want to be in either business, I'd rather make 10 of this than a 1,000 of this. Uh, but at the same time, I guess the question comes down to why. It's hard to make the case that fuel cells in vehicles, stationary is different, offers much more than a plug would anyway. I mean, the, the marketing point for years was, well, you can refuel it faster. Fast, with fast charging and things now, even that's not necessarily the case. And we think people have range anxiety and are worried about finding a plug. They're finding a hydrogen station and the expense to put that in. So never say never, but I don't see it being compelling in the next few decades at least. I think a lot more money will be put into electric cars than they would put in, in hydrogen cars. Definitely. Even though it is interesting, the latest round of California rules does try to push hydrogen uh, into the mix. We need to end it there. Our thanks to Yusilia Wong, contributor at Ford's, Katie Fehrenbacher, senior writer at GigaOM. And GigaOM, am I saying that right? GigaOM. Uh, I practice yoga. I should know that. That's GigaOM. And Chelsea Sexton, an EV advocate and consultant. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today. Thank you.